Twice Told Tales is a podcast about life and literature in the early modern period. I'm Leah Astbury, historian of medicine. And I'm Emma Clawson, and I work on French literature and thought. We're both researchers at the University of Cambridge. We decided during the pandemic to record some of the conversations we were having about our work as a podcast. In the 16th and 17th centuries, people were as interested as they are now in how to live a good life. It was a time of plague, poverty and daily hardship, but still people aspired to live well in an age before wellness. We talk about what makes a good life, then and now, looking at poetry, philosophy, medical texts, diaries and more. In each episode, we will be looking at a particular theme and bringing a text or example from our research to discuss that reflects something interesting about the early modern good life. Hi, Leah. Hi, Emma. How are you? I am very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good as well, yeah. So have you been living a good life this week? Yeah, I have been living a mostly good life this week. As you know, and we've both now had our first vaccines which is very exciting and it's now been two weeks so I guess I'm definitely living a safer life now and it was absolutely fine yeah me too yeah absolutely fine so it was great. a really good a really good experience with it I'm looking forward to the second one yeah and everyone at the center was so nice yeah they were so lovely there were so many volunteers there I was so excited to have it and the actually the doctor or the nurse that gave me the the jab I guess must have seen like 50 people that day or probably more and she was a little bit underwhelmed and she was like wow I can tell you're excited and I was like yeah it's a huge moment <laughs> it's an enormous moment having yeah. the vaccine it is a huge deal have you been living a good life this week you know what I actually have been that's great at the weekend I swam in the sea for the first time wow. since last year yes that's uh, lovely which was wonderful and it wasn't too cold where did you go? I went to the Norfolk coast. And yeah, and today my book was published. <laughs> Woohoo! Politics and Politique in 16th Century France, a conceptual history. That is very exciting. Happy book publication day. And where is it available from, Emma? The internet. <laughs> the internet. Yes. <laughs> and also Cambridge University Press. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so that feels like quite satisfying as a thing to happen. That is such a momentous occasion. That's very cool. Last episode, I was talking about tarot cards. Oh, yeah. And that the tarot card reading I'd had about a job interview was good. And it turns out the tarot cards were right because I have a new job. Yes. <laughs> Woohoo. Yeah, it's so exciting. Uh, I'm moving to Manchester in October to be working on the history of sleep, which is definitely part of the good life. Yeah, a really cool project that I'm really excited about. So congratulations, Leah. Thank you. I'm very excited as well. Wow, what a good good life week for both of us. Okay, and what has made you think of the good life this week? Well, I feel like I always lower the tone in this podcast with um, tarot cards and other kinds of witchery. But um, over lockdown, like many people, I became addicted to watching TikTok which is not a space for a millennial like me. It should be for a younger generation. But it's taught me many things, including that straight leg jeans and that skinny leg jeans are now out. Um, but I'm particularly addicted to this one dog called Blueberry, and he posts dancing videos every day. Um, he takes requests. Um, you should check him out because he's actually really, really <laughs> great at dancing. <laughs> um, 
So that's definitely made me think of the good life, how much joy animals can bring. Right, right. Is Blueberry also living a good life? Absolutely. He's living his absolute best life. He seems happy. I think he doesn't know about his TikTok fame. Um, he just gets to dance every day to videos. You should check him out. I recommend Blueberry if you're having a sad day. I will. What has made you think of The Good Life this week? Um, well, I've, been made, I've, I've just finished a novel um, by an author called Fiona Mosley called Hot Stew. And it's really interesting. It's quite fun. Um, I haven't read a novel for ages, so I think that it has helped me live a good life to get immersed in some stories again. It's just really, it's called, yes, it's called Hot Stew. It's about all these people who live and work in Soho. It's roughly set in the contemporary world, but it's really informed by history and by medieval history, especially. So it's really interesting from that perspective. The central narrative is about these sex workers who face eviction and um, what that means for the communities around them. It's a really interesting story about the characters' individual lives and whether they're living good lives and how structures enable or prevent them from being able to live well and also about how all these lives intersect with one another like Soho is this kind of anthill or beehive where there's all these little cells that that all these characters are living in and they're sort of aware but not aware of each other Um, because the chapters are have these quite tight individual focuses but then all the characters are connected to one another in some way it's really good I, I recommend it it's also quite fun I think it you could argue that it's a novel about life, about the good life, about well-being, about well-being in the city, about so- Soho. Um, but it's also got this great historical aspect, which, um, you know, since we have our historical interests, and maybe our listeners do too, um, that's a really enjoyable part of it for me as well. Do you like reading historical fiction? I absolutely love it. I used to love historical fiction when I was younger, but now I really struggle to read it and enjoy it. Same with kind of documentaries, historical documentaries and things like that. Is it because it's inaccurate or just because it feels too much like work? I think it feels like work. It doesn't bother me that it's inaccurate. I think I have, I'm not sure that's really the point for me of, of kind of historical fiction or of documentaries, but it's more that it just makes me think of work and it feels like a workspace um, that I would much prefer to watch or read something that was kind of set today. So today our topic is religion and the good life, spirituality and the good life, whether faith is integral to living a good life in the early modern period. So we've, we've talked in previous episodes about you know the body and um and a bit of the body and soul. Um, and today, I suppose, I suppose is more soul focused, but it's also about it's about religion in general. So, could you start us off with a bit of an overview of what's happening in the area you work on with um, religion and faith? Yeah. So, I guess I am not a historian of religion, but because of the nature of my interest, which is in what everyday people did medically and socially, most of the sources that we have for the 16th and the 17th and the early 18th centuries in England are very, very, very religiously focused. And part of the reason for that is um, a certain kind of value within English Protestantism, um, which is on self-evaluation and on writing in particular and having a personal engagement with God, reading the Bible and writing out what you think about it and rewriting passages, but also trying to interpret one's own life in relationship to that scripture. So almost all of the sources that I use, all of the diaries and the letters are written by 
what some historians sometimes like to call like the hotter sort of Protestants. So the really kind of militant, very vocal proponents of Anglicanism. The example that I brought that we'll talk about later today is from just that kind of individual. And it is men and women who write these kinds of very religious texts. But I will say that religiosity in this period, I think it's very easy for us to underestimate how dominant worship and belief was in people's lives. And it's integral to all kinds of social interactions and community interactions that you know, for example, church is the place that you go and see people in your neighborhood, in your community, multiple times a week. At certain parts in this century, it's illegal not to go to church. And similarly, it's illegal not to, say, be churched after you give birth. That's the ceremony you have after you give birth. So all these kinds of liturgical moments, that they're, they're mandatory, they're not optional. And so the church And its sort of relationship to government even kind of infiltrates every aspect of people's lives. Yeah, I suppose it was was partly about sources. So as historians of all kinds of things, like history in general, the archive is mainly like parish records or in a Calvinist setting in France, Switzerland, like consistory records and that kind of thing. So even if you're not a historian of religion specifically, you end up with an overwhelming sense that people's lives are so embedded into religion. So you can think about it in terms of the good life with religion is also is a matter of personal spiritual life, but it's also like everyday life and community life. Yeah. And I guess like if we're talking about different definitions of the good life, which we've spoken about in previous episodes, then we've had this question, is a good life one that you enjoy? Is a good life one that other people enjoy? Within this kind of framework, thinking about religiosity, belief, faith, and the good life there's a very prescriptive idea that is top down about what a good life is and that's certainly a question that a lot of individuals grapple with in their diaries and spiritual meditations is what behaviors what decisions can I make that are the most good as it were like the most godly because people have an interest in generally living a godly life but I think also because people are interested in going to heaven and that is the ultimate good life Yeah, yeah, I think we'll talk about that more later. So there's a lot of religious conflict in this period. The Reformation, which some people date to 1517, when Luther pinned his 95 theses to a church in Württemberg in Germany, criticizing the Catholic Church for its problems and corruptions. So the Reformation is basically a big split in Christianity that leads to multiple denominations instead of a singular one. Although I think we can exaggerate how much Catholicism is uniform before the Reformation, because there's many spiritual orders and different kinds of practice. But anyway, there is then this conflict, broadly speaking, between Catholics and Protestants. So in some ways, it's harder than ever before to live a religious good life, either because your version of religion is not tolerated where you live, or because you're fighting your neighbours or you're, you're in, you know, in France, there is a civil war between 1562 and 1598 that's fought largely... I mean, it's a political war, but it's also fought on religious grounds, often between Protestant and Catholic factions and armies. So the religious good life and the political good life come into conflict as well. So it's an age of very fertile spirituality, where spirituality is really important in people's lives, but people are dying for it and people are killing each other for it. So their lives are impossible because of it in some circumstances. You know, there's religious wars in the Netherlands, in Germany... Absolutely. Yeah. And often those kinds of stories of persecution then become sort of rallying cries in martyrologies of, 
you know, people dying for their religion, dying for for their belief in the word of God. Yeah, so very a very fraught time and and one in which I think it's kind of interesting that this is one of our later episodes, whereas in a way, actually, the soul is completely integral to this question of what is a good life, what's a good person in this period. Yeah, and how people in the period would have thought about whether they were living a good life, whether they were good or not, in whose eyes, in God's eyes, really. And there's not a huge amount of religion in Europe that's not Christian. There are areas where there are Jewish communities who either kind of slightly below the radar or like in Italy, for example, they live in certain areas, but they're like allowed to be Jewish. So there is a kind of religious other that's not within Christianity in Europe. And in a way, Europe is becoming less diverse, isn't it, religiously? Because you had this amazing, I mean, I'm not a historian of Spain at all, but you had this multi-ethnic, multi-faith Spanish peninsula before the reconquest where Muslims, Jews and Christians are living side by side, probably not always peacefully, but they are coexisting. And then that all ends in the end of the 15th century. And then Islam becomes the kind of peripheral, potentially incursive force but it's quite an important point of comparison for a lot of Christians as well and humanists are really interested in thinking about classical Greek and Roman faith and thinking about how that can either map onto or or be dispensed with in modern Christianity. It seems to me that also people are kind of constantly looking for signs of what is the right way to worship in this period especially you know within Christianity itself and you know, all kinds of things can be interpreted as evidence of getting it right, as it were, you know, winning a battle, or likewise, illness, pestilence can be a test that indicates you're part of the elect. So people are constantly kind of searching for signs in the weather, in human events, in the Bible, of course. So if you're living a good life, it's kind of proof that you're spiritually good as well, sometimes. Absolutely. Materially or practically. Yeah. I think being wealthy, being healthy, being beautiful, being happy, all of these things are proof that you're living a good godly life. Right. Gosh. The only other thing I wanted to add in the general section of this discussion is that in some of the slightly older scholarship in my field, which is European history or history of ideas, there has been the suggestion that this is a period where atheism developed for the first time. But I think that idea has gone very much out the window because of the sheer overwhelming evidence that faith is, as you say, integral to people's daily lives, to people's experience, to the way that they live their life narrative, you know, from birth through family events, funerals, and then their own death. And, you know, religion is kind of the grand administrator as well as the spiritual guide. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But then, as I said, the sources that I use are so religious anyway that the impression I would get is that everybody is religious and that there's no sort of alternative framework for understanding life. But the word atheist does exist. There's an example in a diary that I read sometimes to find out about the history of early modern Paris of a so-called atheist being burnt at the stake. And on the scaffold, he blasphemes and curses God and all this kind of thing. I guess the diarist takes it as a proof that he was a true atheist. But I think that maybe atheist means in that context against God rather than not believing in God. Right. So you're God's enemy. And it's a little bit more like being a heretic. There are doubts about proof that come later in the 17th and 18th centuries, but atheism probably comes later. I think that because a lot of the sources that I look at are quite heterodox, 
which means that you know they don't always follow doctrine very closely and sometimes they express suspicion or doubt about the authenticity of various religious principles and other than that they don't necessarily talk about it at all you know then they have been read as being kind of proto-atheists but I think that's just because there's genre distinctions so it's not appropriate for them where it's appropriate to write a spiritual diary and to write about God there if you're writing meditations on civic action or whatever it is you're writing then it's not appropriate if you you know you might end up saying very quickly at the end oh but it's all God's will but it's not really like the convention for that genre to go deep into into religion and it's kind of just assumed that you're writing for a religious audience I think I think that's that's what's going on there that makes sense yeah okay so I'm really excited to hear about the example that you've brought today your spiritual diary yeah so I have brought an excerpt from a diary that I've been using for a very very long time that is called my first book of my life by a woman called Alice Thornton who's a Yorkshire gentlewoman she's born in 1626 she's the daughter of the late Lord Deputy of Ireland but her family runs into financial hard times and as a result she has to marry and she's actually quite unhappy about getting married but she does and she writes my first book of my life which is actually in the British Library and there's another volume that's also in the British Library that's about her life it's autobiographical such a great title especially for this podcast but in general my first book of my life I know yeah and then there are actually a further two volumes that she's written one is in the Sterling Library in Yale University, but it's just a microfilm. We've lost the original copy. And there's another book that for a very long time everyone thought had just disappeared. But recently, I think two years ago, an academic, Dr. Cordelia Beatty, found the fourth volume in the Durham Cathedral uh, Library. That's so cool. Yeah, and she's doing this great project now to kind of digitize the diary. But anyway, this is from the first one, which is the one that people normally use. And The reason I brought it today and I thought was particularly interesting for living a good life and in particular religiosity is I think often people assume that these kinds of texts are purely about explorations of the soul because she goes through every single thing that happens in her life, you know, each of the births of her children, sickness of family and friends, all kinds of like worldly and intimate events and interprets them in relationship to scripture and what she can learn from it and how she can live a better life. But the reason that we have this diary is because she was accused. It's a little bit unclear exactly what she was accused of, but her husband dies and there's a minister called Thomas Comer and he is then betrothed to her daughter. And there's an accusation in the community that she's trying to marry him herself. It's a little bit unclear exactly what she's been accused of, but for her, it is truly terrible the idea that people would think that she was this ungodly and was a bad person within her community and so she writes these volumes and she circulates them within her family and within the small community of where she lives in East Newton to try and rescue her reputation and so the example that I'm bringing today is where she's very explicit in the diary of how hurtful these what she calls false slanders raised against me she writes this in July 1668 can I just ask so she writes this after she's been accused so does she go back in time and write entries for her earlier life 
rather than writing everything kind of like on the day. Yeah, so she definitely doesn't write it on the day. She's definitely writing in retrospect. It's unclear whether or not she's using some kind of master text, which has been lost. And it's kind of unclear at the moment until Cordelia Beatty does the work on the new volume, like how they intersect, whether they're second drafts. Often they cover slightly different things. But no, she's definitely writing in retrospect. And the idea is she's going through each episode in her life and showing how actually she was a good person and actually did the right thing and was godly and that there's a kind of a consistency to her being a good wife and a good mother. And when her husband dies in particular, I think one of the things that she feels very anxious about is the fact that she's expressed annoyance about him and his conduct in the past. And she also was not overly keen to get married in the first place. So she describes herself as thy weak and afflicted handmaid and servant, overwhelmed with the storms of ungodly and wicked doers, whose tongues are like raziers, sharp as a two-edged sword. They gaped on me with their mouths and scorn was in their hearts. So she talks about how God knows the content of her heart and her mind and even if these people have said these things about her her enemies and they said malicious things secret things she says that I may tread the steps of my dearest savior and daily take up his cross and follow him thou hast never failed me oh my god even when I was in deep distress and anguish of my soul and spirit she says I'm just an acceptance of thy rod and she's interpreting these kind of slanders her exclusion from the community as being kind of a test a divine test that she has to withstand interestingly in this kind of moment I think because she's anxious about the fact that um, she's maybe expressed some things about her husband in the past she thanks God for her dear husband who thou hast given me with a long and comfortable life with the happy opportunity of his children's religious education so I think again this idea of divine will comes up that the fact that she's had children, the fact that she's had this long, happy marriage is kind of proof of um, the intensity of her faith. Today I'm using a, a printed edition, but the one in the, the British Library is, is a manuscript copy. It was in private hands for a very long time. And then when I started my PhD, I found out that it had been um, given to the British Library. And the first time that I went, I'd been in there for about 15 minutes and the fire alarm went off oh, and we could classic. smell smoke in the British Library. And I just felt like it was so valuable, this 300 pages that I'd been thinking about for so long. I thought, you know, if there's a fire, this will be the only, you know, if I took it out, this would be the only thing that would survive from the British Library. But I didn't take it out. <laughs> and is it her hand? It's her copy? Yeah. That's so intense. So you're confronting the material evidence of her, of her life, you know, her hand on the page. I always find that so moving for these people who lived and, and didn't leave their actual material traces in, in manuscript form. Yeah, it's amazing. You wonder all the hands that have, you know, held it and read it and what it meant to them as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, I always find that very kind of transporting when you read people's actual handwriting. Yeah. It's so interesting that she's so excluded from her community. Is that a kind of way of showing that she has a special relationship with God? So it's just her and God and then nobody else understands them. That she has to prove it through her writing and through her proof of her special relationship with her spirituality. I just wonder if going through all these trials and being so alone and alienated is another way for her to show her spiritual good life in a way, even though it's a kind of bad social life. Yeah, she's sort of a martyr, yeah. I think, in her eyes. I mean, I think this theme of community exclusion is a perpetual one, particularly in English diaries and letters, is fear of being judged by your community and not 
being allowed sort of access to I guess social credit and um, I think that must have been a very lonely and scary place to be Um, it makes me think actually of uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this film um, The Witch no I haven't it's about a recently emigrated New England family in the 1600s and they get cast out of their community for not towing the official religious line and they get banished to this sort of very hostile new environment and all kinds of terrible things go wrong. But you really feel the weight of of social exclusion in this period and what it meant. It's probably a, a, an interesting kind of thing to reflect on in relation to COVID as well, I guess. Yeah. I have some reflections on on COVID in, in my example, actually. Oh, yeah. What's your example? Okay, so I got very embroiled in my example, which I think is totally characteristic of what it's like to read this text. So I wanted to talk about some excerpts from Blaise Pascal's Pensée, which literally means thoughts. It's a set of fragments. It's kind of a, often considered a work of philosophy. It's like hundreds and hundreds of brief or slightly longer texts about human experience and the conceit is that it's meant to be the preparation of a document that's going to persuade people to convert to a very particular kind of Christianity but also to become good Christians in general but the author Pascal dies before it can actually be completed so it just all we have is these fragments and it's very beautiful and poetic and extremely wide-ranging about human life and what it is to live and you know human the contradiction between nature of man and human misery and how to overcome it and all these kinds of things so I was wondering if we could think about it slightly as a spiritual diary in some ways because it's something that he wrote as he was grappling with the idea of what it is to be a believer in a world where human judgment and the whole possibility of proof are really fallible so it's sort of a spiritual diary, but I think you can see it as consonant with that kind of life writing or that kind of form of spiritual meditation. But it does have the potential purpose of converting other people because he, the writer, had a sort of Damascene conversion moment in 1654. So I should say that he's born in 1623. So when he is 31 or so overnight you know he suddenly becomes united with the divine spirit that is god and is motivated to then pursue how that union could come about but also kind of relive it (laughs) thereafter and there's a fragment in the collection that's often published in various places in there called the memorial he writes you know joy 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 i'm never going to be separated from god again i'm going to renounce everything else totally so that we can be one forever you know it's this kind of ecstatic moment that he experienced one night he's a real insomniac oh is he (laughs) yeah that's part of his biography in general you know he comes up with these kind of mathematical scientific discoveries while he can't sleep as well because i should say that he is much more than a religious thinker he's a really astonishing figure for his age he's this kind of early to mid 17th century person who was a child prodigy in maths you know he invented one of the first mechanical calculators he clarified the idea of what a vacuum is a unit of pressure that i think is used in like engineering and physics that's still used is named after him the kind of the pascal oh so he really is multi-talented and you know he works on the idea of probability as well And what he's really famous for outside, um, I guess, this period of history or French literature is Pascal's Wager. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So the idea, roughly speaking, that you might not know if Christianity is the true faith or if God is real, but given that it might be, and it's way better to believe 
in that case, it's sort of like hedging your bets because if you don't believe and it turns out to be real, then you're screwed. And if you do believe, even if you make yourself believe and you even if you weren't sure originally, then the payoff is great. I think that real Pascal scholars would say it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's that's what he's famous for kind of theologically. That point is found in the Pensée, which is just a much more bizarre and wide-ranging text than that. And his, you know, and it makes him sound so cynical, Pascal's wager. But in fact, it's kind of heartbreakingly sincere in his account of what it is to be to be human and to suffer and to not be sure what you're doing and to feel lonely and all this kind of thing. So you have these manuscripts that have been ordered and reordered by specialists, and they put the fragments in different orders. <laughs> Um, anyway, I'm using the um, Cellier edition with the Pochetek. And so one example that I thought I could look at that was really brief is number 516, which says, and this is just my rough translation reading it, so I'll read it in French first. Si c'est un aveuglement surnaturel de vivre sans chercher ce qu'on est, c'en est un terrible de vivre mal en croyant Dieu. So this is kind of really misnomic or bizarre aphorisms that he comes up with. That's a, That's one example. Like, so he says... If it's exceptional or supernatural blindness to live without seeking to know what you are, it's an even worse one to live badly if you believe in God. So he's setting up these challenges and you don't know who he's really talking to. Is he talking to himself? Is he talking to his reader who he's trying to convert? And I think that example shows how much he's interested in life. You know, he uses, you know, what kind of life you're living, what kind of life is possible and he goes through quite a lot of different ways that humans live, that they try to distract themselves. So the main one that I think I decided to look at is called um, divertissement or distraction. So he goes through all the distractions that people lean on instead of living a godly life. So that one I just read um, is really short. And it's just kind of like, it's terrible not to think about what life should be. But if you're living badly, if you're a believer, that's even worse, you know. And then, you know, there's just laying down a corner. What are you supposed to do with that? I don't know. Like, just go into a room and think about yourself, right? <laughs> that's kind of what he's saying to the reader. But then this one is much, much longer. So he says, Quand je m'y suis mis quelquefois à considérer les diverses agitations des hommes et les périls et les peines où ils s'exposent dans la cour, dans la guerre, d'où naissent tant de querelles, de passions, d'entreprises hardies et souvent mauvaises, etc., J'ai dit souvent que tout le malheur des hommes vient d'une seule chose, qui est de ne savoir pas demeurer en repos dans une chambre. Un homme qui a assez de biens pour vivre, s'il savait demeurer chez soi avec plaisir, n'en sortirait pas pour aller sur la mer ou au siège d'une place. Okay, so what this means is, so he says, when I sit down to think about the different troubles that assail mankind and the dangers that man exposes himself to at court, at war, in arguments, in pursuing his passions, in trying out things that are challenging and often bad, I have often said that the greatest unhappiness of humans comes from one thing, which is that they don't know how to be alone in a room. Oof. Yeah. And someone who has enough to live on, if he could only know how to stay at home and with pleasure, he would not go overseas or lay siege to a town or whatever. I think I needed this at the beginning of lockdown. Yeah, I know. So that's partly why I decided to talk about that one, because I've been teaching that passage for a long time now. And this year, it just felt almost too much. Yeah. You know, in this context in which nobody knows how to be alone in a room, really, and be happy. I will just say that I think right at the beginning of lockdown, there was so much chat about why were we finding it so difficult? 
and actually it is incredibly difficult to be alone and isolated and I don't think we should feel guilty or ashamed or embarrassed about that no and that is basically what Pascal goes on to say actually so this often gets cited out of context I think that this kind of great stoic statement if you could only sit alone and contemplate yourself and be happy doing that then you know what would be the problem that's what you should be able to do and then he goes through all these other ways that people distract themselves, you know, playing cards, having sex, all these kinds of things. But in the end, he's quite sympathetic. You know, humankind is fundamentally going to suffer in that scenario. So he's kind of setting you up to think that he's going to pursue these stoic principles. And he's going to tell you, actually, you can just sit alone in a room. But then he kind of goes on to say, but man is miserable, <laughs> fundamentally, if they're put in that situation. And no wonder but then you know for him what you need to overcome that is you know is not to be self-sufficient is you need god right so the whole enterprise really is setting up the idea that the individual self alone is not enough for a good life and trying to make that happen is just going to lead you to more misery (laughs) right and also it to a certain extent the distractions what he calls distractions that is just living right I mean, that's what we all took refuge in at the beginning of lockdown was thinking about eating. We did more drinking. I think I think everyone took much more interest in their sort of domestic, everyday, prosaic sort of maintenance in a way that was restorative. Yeah, and I think Pascal does really neglect those. I think that actually his physical life is quite relevant here because he was really ill for a lot of his life especially in adulthood and he died young he died when he was 39 he comes across in short excerpts as quite austere and unsympathetic but actually I think he is very sympathetic to all the different ways that people try and live wow what an amazing example yeah I love Pascal I wasn't really expecting to he had his conversion moment to God in his life. And I sort of had my conversion moment through teaching Pascal. Because when I was a student, I just thought, oh, this really, really long, difficult text that tries to convert people to Christianity is not for me. There's a kind of this combination of him being a set text. And then if you give time to these fragments, then you can find a lot of just idiosyncrasy and a lot that is quite um, funny and affecting and he seems like the kind of person who started out wanting to make these all these judgments and, and be quite um, exacting about mankind. But it ends up being quite sympathetic, I think. So I think that our examples really are interesting together because I was really struck by what you were saying about how Alice Thornton is talking about how God knows her. And that knowledge and her knowledge of God's knowledge of her is this kind of really important proof of her value and of her life be having meaning so god has to know her and then things are okay whereas for pascal i suppose that it's also he and his readers have to know god and that's really difficult that he's not fashioning himself necessarily as a spiritual model i think in the same way as alice thornton is doing so in a very obvious and sort of prescriptive way that this is the right way to live a life and this is the correct behavior but it sounds like Pascal is more unsure on a philosophical level. Well, I think he's really sure that faith and I guess his version of faith, which is conditioned by a very particular set of developments that happened in France at the time that are within Catholicism, but he's part of a sect that is slightly fringe. I mean, it's very important for a lot of philosophers and writers of his time. 
a lot of people follow it. It's called Jansenism, but it doesn't end up taking real hold in people's lives or having real institutional power for more than a short time. But yeah, so I think he's really convinced about a certain set of principles and that people should live with God. But I just think that in terms of divine will and how easy it is for the human to know God, I think he's thinking a lot about how, how difficult it is and how difficult it is to persuade people to live the right kind of godly life and how difficult it is to be happy, actually, because what he's saying is that the happy life is sort of possible if you really can have this kind of union, this spiritual union with the divine. And that is what he's seeking. And that is what he's trying to persuade his readers that they can achieve. But it's not easy. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking a little bit about our previous episode about sex and marriage and that relationship to the good life. And Alice Thornton describes herself in a common kind of metaphor as a handmaid of Christ. And there is an idea that one's relationship with Christ is like a marriage. And of course, we have that much more strongly when you look at nuns. And of course, that's where the handmaid's tale gets its name from. But I think the similarity between like marriage is something that you work at, but is also meant to provide ecstasy and joy and the devotion is meant to be a joyful one rather than a constant chore <laughs> as it were but then the acceptance that living a good godly life is a constant struggle and requires constant effort and constant vigilance do you think there's also a parallel in the sense that they're both supposed to provide a kind of afterlife so feeling like you've lived a good life is also partly that something of you outlives you so like at least the normative model is that in a marriage children outlive you and they are a kind of futurity for you and in much more obvious sense the religious life provides a version of you not your whole self I don't think that they believe in the entire transposition of your mortal body but some part of your life has an afterlife in the religious model yeah and I guess hence like Alice Thornton says one of the things she's most grateful for is having children and being able to religiously instruct them God living on in her children that she's performed her duty of furthering the knowledge of his word through religious education and actually do you think in writing she's also kind of trying to prolong her life in some way or trying to leave a trace especially calling it like the book of my life that's another kind of afterlife isn't it it's no accident that it survives she's asked for her family members to keep it and actually you know we we do know much more about how it was kept that her family kind of very deliberately kept it both to prevent these accusations but also because they found it incredibly valuable as as both a record of the family and her genealogy but also as a spiritual model for posterity so no absolutely and I think the process of writing is kind of a form of embodied devotion like prayer so what do you think you would want a listener to really take from this discussion Leah I guess I think what I want people to take from this discussion is an appreciation for how pervasive religiosity was in this period and how multivalent it was for people and infiltrated sort of every kind of financial, political, moral, personal decision for individuals and really was a structure, perhaps the only obvious structure in this period in people's lives. And although there were huge discontinuities in what religious practice was recommended, was persecuted, what living a good godly life meant. There's remarkable continuity 
to the emphasis on this. You know, the argument is that in the late 17th century, early 18th century is the beginning of secularization. But I think looking at more personal sources, like the ones I look at from maybe not everyday people, because they're often quite wealthy, but religiosity is still so central in the ways people live life and consider what is good and what is bad. What do you feel uh, people should take away from today? I think it's exactly what you said. I think that's all beautifully put. And I really agree. I mean, I hardly have anything to add. I suppose I would say that Pascal is really worth reading. And I suppose that I might say that what's interesting about him that it's a sort of a takeaway, but in a little PS as well, is that he's a scientist and he's responsible for a lot of the big scientific discoveries of the age. And that is in no way in conflict with his deep spirituality. I wouldn't want to portray the religious good life as one that is only to do with people and ideas that we've left in the past. And I think that science and rationality are incredibly important to Pascal. And that is a bedrock of his faith as well. It's interesting you use the term science, because I guess some people might see that as controversial in this period to describe it as science. But I think it's such a good point to make that we tend to see sort of rational discourse and learning as very separate and antithetical to being religious and actually in this period it's not just complementary but sort of essential one cannot be a public figure without being religious yeah thank you for listening to twice told tales written and presented by leah asbury and emma clausen and edited by fiona simon if you want to get in touch please email us at twice told tales podcast at gmail.com and we're both on twitter 